0: Welcome to afternoons with me. I'm Bill Arnold. I hope you enjoyed the first hour of my interview with Dr. Larry Crab. Larry uh departed this earth on February twenty-eighth at age seventy-seven. He went home to be with the Lord. And if you have enjoyed this first hour, I know you'll enjoy this hour as well. Larry left a big impact on me and many others. If you own one of Larry's books, you you know that it got to you, didn't it? Yes, admit it, it got to you. <laughs> I know that it doesn't uh Happen very often uh, with books you read, or sermons you hear, or counseling that you receive. But Larry had this ability, in my opinion, to sort of get under your skin and leave you with things to think about, and always would encourage you to be growing in your maturity and in your faith. And he would say, take every one of these failures and troubles that you experience, and use it, uh, and push back against the the adversity and take a closer look at what God is doing in your life especially when it when he feels like he might be far from you and so he wrote a whole number of books all of which I enjoy you can go, go to amazon.com and just type in larry crab and you will find all of his books there um he's just an absolute he was an absolute delight of a guy and the last text exchange I had with him uh he said you know I would really love to do radio again with you sometime uh, but, you know, I still have some chemo that I'm doing, and uh, I know there's a, a cure for my my cancer in sight, so I just uh, need to keep focused on this. But a really big thanks for your love and for your prayers. And that was the last exchange I, I had with him, and he was a, a guy that would leave a very, very large impression and did on me. Anyway, I've enjoyed my time with him uh, in person and uh, on the radio, and I wanted to ask uh, if I could just replay a couple hours. And, of course, my station manager said yes. I'm going out to put the second coat of wax on his car. So please enjoy this time with Dr. Larry Crab. have a great show. I can't wait. Uh, my first guest, Dr. Larry Crabb, is already on our studio line, and I'm very excited to talk to him. The last time he was on the program, we had so much unbelievably positive response that say, so many people said, when are you going to have him back? So today's the day. Um, and then uh, we've got a great second hour as well, but let's focus on the first hour, and I want to have a little opening devotional today, and it's going to be done by my guest, Larry Crabb. He doesn't even know that he's doing this, but this... Uh, comes from a a message I heard him teach, I don't know, maybe 20 plus years ago. Here it is.
1: As our Lord went to the cross about to bear the sin of the world, we have recorded what was on his mind as he was about to die. Obviously, what's on the mind of the impeccable son of God as he's about to die is that which is centrally important. So we have in John 17 that which has to be striking at the very core of all the thinking that we should do. He begins the prayer by saying, Father, the time has come. Glorify your son, that your son may glorify you. You granted him authority over all people, that he might give eternal life to all those who have given to all those you have given him. And then verse three is the one that I want to highlight as we introduce our subject. Now this is eternal life. Now when you hear the word eternal life, don't think in immediately religious rhetoric terms. Don't think in terms of, Well, that means that I die and go to heaven. Think rather in terms of this is a quality of life that endures any kind of difficulty that comes up. This is the essence of what it means to be richly alive. Now, this is eternal life. This is real life. This is the fullness of life. And how do you suppose... um, I wonder how we would finish the sentence. This is life. This is life that... How do you finish it? What's the natural inclination when you're in the middle of struggles? You've already said it. To find some way to resolve the struggle. Why? Because we think somehow that's life. Our Lord said, wait a minute. This is life that they may... know." God. That's got to be more than Christian ease. That's got to be more than religious rhetoric. This is eternal life that they may know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent.
0: It is eight minutes after the hour. You're going to be awfully glad you joined me today, like. Uh, No other day we've got Dr. Larry Crabb. He's a well-known psychologist and speaker. He's a Bible teacher, author, and he's founder and director of New Way Ministries. And he's back on the program. We had him on about a month ago. He's awfully uh, gracious to come back and be with us again. Hello, Larry.
2: Hi, Bill. It's so kind of you to have me back.
0: Do you remember uh, what convention-style badge you were wearing when you gave that talk?
2: I think that was in 1830, so I really forget it. (laughs) (laughs) But I do, I still believe what I said. It's kind of fun, though. That was 20 years ago. I don't know, but I still believe everything that I said there, because it's straight from the Bible.
0: Yeah, you know, it's it's so interesting, too, because Rebecca and I were listening to part of that, our producer, and we were hearing about one of your big inspirations, Chuck Smith, who was going through something that you were going through now. So we found it to be unbelievably poignant, but didn't want to play that part of the message.
2: Yeah, I sure recall uh, Chuck Smith, he's uh, one of the, if I could list 10 men, 10 people, men and women that have had a profound influence on my life, he'd be in those top 10. He yeah, really would. He, that's
0: what you said on the tape. And that he was... went
2: through so many difficult things and so much heartache and tr- struggle. And um, I remember talking to him and just being so encouraged by the fact that he understood what I was talking about in that excerpt you played, that there's a life that about knowing the Lord that sustains you in the middle of the worst things of, that happened to you. And Chuck was an incredible example of that for me.
0: hmm Well that was a, a conference that I was at that you spoke at and and really I, I I've kept a half a dozen tapes of speeches and talks and, and I've got I think out of the six I think three of them belong to you. Uh, well, that's so you're you're kind of trying kind of to get a share that. You're kind of a big deal Larry in my world
2: Well, join the small crowd.
0: (laughs) But Every time you start a sentence, whether you're writing or speaking, I always want to hear how it ends. So you get me and engage me, and then I can't wait to find out what your finishing thought is going to be. So um, I'd like to start by just getting an update on how you're feeling, and I know you've been through some, some issues with your health, and we had a number of people write the station and say, How's Larry? How did his appointment go?
2: <laughs> oh my goodness. Oh, Isn't that sweet? That's so kind to hear. Yeah. Nice nice to belong to the community of believers who actually care about each other. Yeah. Um yeah, I've I can actually give you some pretty encouraging news that hasn't been realized yet, but it's looking good. Yeah. And I'll just give you the very brief version <laughs> of it. There's a specialist in my kind of cancer that called me after you and I had chatted on the phone. And he said, you know, this is pretty much his words now. He said, I think it's time to get rid of those tumors, and I have a procedure that I think might uh, might get it mostly done. And um, so we're going to be flying out to see this guy. I've actually seen him twice already, but uh, he said, I think it's time to do something that's not going to be very hard on you, and it might make a big difference in your long-term health. So we have some reason for encouragement. We're very grateful.
0: Well, that encourages me, and I know our listeners as well, and I was so appreciative of the listeners that showed just such an immediate uh, response in caring about you. I thought, well, gosh, that's, that that warms my heart, too, that that they're, uh, they're responding that way, so I was just pleased, and then I was excited that you could come back on the show, because there's so much I want to talk to you about, and you're at a perfect stage in age of life to talk about your book, When God's Ways Make No Sense, because... Um, It seems that we as Christians uh, have a certain narrative, narrative in our head about how we think life should go because we're Christians.
2: Exactly, and I think we claim a lot of promises from God that he's never made. And you can't get in much worse trouble than doing that, to expect God to do something that he hasn't promised to do. He's promised to form us to be more like Jesus. He's promised to give us a love for the Father. He's promised to fill us with the Spirit. He's promised to do these things, and he thinks they're really incredible. You know, Paul says we're lavished to all the spiritual blessings in heavenly places. Well, that's a promise. But what he's not promised to do is to follow the script that I've written for the smaller story of my life while I'm here on earth you know i got all my got my script all written out i want to be totally healthy <laughs> i want to have plenty of money i mm-hmm. want to you know have this i want to have that and i want to have all the blessings of life and i do have a bunch of them and i'm really grateful for it but you can't take any of those blessings for granted because they're 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 not they're not promised when they're given they're wonderful but um it's a real mistake to assume that god is most interested in the happiness that we feel when we're blessed in the obvious things that we call blessings He wants us to know a deeper kind of joy, which I would call true happiness. Um, And it's sort of consistent with what the Greeks used to say many, many centuries ago. They defined happiness or joy as living congruently with your deepest nature. And my deepest nature, if I understand Ezekiel 36 and Jeremiah 31 right, that I have a new heart, my deepest nature is the exact nature that was in Jesus as a human being. And I get that from Second Peter 1, 4. We're partakers of the divine nature. And if I'm going to live congruently with my deepest nature, I'm going to live like Jesus, and I'm going to want to be pleasing the Father and delighting in the Father and delighting the Father no matter what's going on in my life. And that's going to be the secret of the, the deepest kind of joy a Christian can know in this life. Until we get to heaven, where there's no more struggles, no more cancer, no more divorce, no more kids that break your heart, no more anything that's bad. But until then... Uh, we don't, don't have promise of all those blessings that we obviously desire. Nothing's wrong with praying for them, but everything's wrong with feeling entitled to them.
0: Mm, yeah. Now, Larry, in your book, When God Makes No Sense, you you use this wonderful illustration of Jonah. And I, I would love to take some time today and going through some of the five key elements in Jonah's story. Uh, you, I, I highlighted this. You run away from his plan toward a better life than the one God. God seems willing to provide. And that just really struck with me, because it's like God is willing to provide a plan, and yet we look at it and go, eh, not interested, going somewhere else.
2: Yeah, absolutely. And and I think that the, the story of Jonah makes it so clear, because, um, you know, as the Scriptures say, it's in Second Kings, I think it's 14, I'm blocking it exactly, but in 14 of Second Kings, God came to Jonah and said, I want you to go to the nation of Israel, and they're living a very miserable life. The king is very evil. But in spite of all that, as my prophet, I want you to tell him to expect blessings to come. God can do whatever he chooses, and even that makes no sense to me, to go to a very wicked nation and say, I'm going to bless you. Well, Jonah did that. Of course, he became a pretty popular prophet. But then, a little while later, we don't know how much later, God comes to Jonah and says, i um, essentially this, now I'm putting some words in they're filling in some, some words here, but what he's essentially saying is, Jonah, I understand that you're very happy about the blessings in Israel, and the only real concern that Israel has, and that you as Jonah, as a citizen of Israel have, is um, a, a terrible nation called Assyria, the capital is Nineveh, and they are threatening to undo all the good times that you're enjoying, and you assume that I'm committed to the good times that you're enjoying, but no, I'm committed to other people's knowing me, not only you, but I want other people to know me. And I want you to give Nineveh. I want you to travel there. It's about a 900-mile walk, and I want you to take it. (laughs) And I want you to preach to Nineveh and give them a chance to repent. And if they repent, I'm not going to destroy them. And Jonah's thought was, it would be much better if you destroyed them, God. And at that point, he just said, "Um, I don't like the plan that you have for my life. It doesn't make any sense to me. So, as you just said, I'm going to pursue a very, different, um, a very different plan. I'm going to pursue the plan of life working much better for me on my terms.
0: Mm-hmm. Larry, I'm going to take a little break, but when I come back, I'm going to ask you a personal story when uh, God doesn't seem to make sense. And then I want to get back to Jonah. So that's all ahead with Dr. Larry Kraft. We'll be back in a minute. Hi, this is Bill. Thanks for being with me. You are listening today to a memorial tribute to Dr. Larry Crabb. I glad you joined me today. Dr. Larry Crabb is my guest all hours. Larry, right before break, I said I'm going to come back and hit you with something a little personal, and then we can move on to Jonah some more. But um, when God, your book, When God's Ways Don't Make No Sense... Um, I, w- if you don't mind, would you talk about what happened to your brother?
2: Uh, yeah, I was, um, sitting with my wife at our church on a Sunday morning, it was actually engaging the Lord's supper. And as they were passing the elements, uh, one of the elders came up and tapped me on the shoulder and said, you have a, have an emergency phone call. And to make the story short, I went back and it was my father. Uh, obviously, living at the time, and said that uh, he heard that there was a plane crash, and that my um, uh, and that Bill, my brother, was on that plane crash, crashing in Colorado Springs, and I was in Denver at the time. And I said, "Dad, I have no idea about this. It's the first I've heard of it. I'm going to drive right down there, and I'll call you back." So my wife and I got in the car and drove down to Colorado Springs Airport, and a plane had crashed. My brother had been flying standby. On that plane, he was a psychologist, and he had just finished uh, doing a seminar on the East Coast, and had living in Colorado Springs. Had flown back into the Denver, was going to catch a short little flight from Denver to the Springs, and it was standby, and he was the last man to get on, the last purse passenger to get on, and the plane crashed. And one of the most fascinating, I guess, difficult things, the um, Federal Aviation uh, Company um, investigated the crash as they always do. And as I understand it, I think I'm right on this. It's the only crash in the last I don't know how many years that the aviation group could not explain why it crashed. To this day, they have no explanation for it. But the plane crashed, and this, the, the 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 crew, a limited crew in a small plane, and 23, if I'm recalling right, passengers, including my brother, all died. And um, I got that word, and my wife was waiting in a car on the outside. We hadn't couldn't find a parking space and she was staying in the car in the middle of a bedlam at the airport of course and i um was walking around trying to find somebody who i could talk to and i saw one uniformed person that was walking slow enough for me to grab and i said can you tell me what happened on flight 585 and she not unkindly but rather quickly because she was in a hurry she said yes the plane crashed and all people on that board died and that was a moment I knew Bill was dead, and I walked out. And Rachel saw me, my wife, and I just was frozen. And I just said, "Bill's dead," and um, that's what happened. And that was one of the more difficult times in our family's life. So that's the that's the meat of the story.
0: Mm-hmm. So it kind of brings me, uh, Larry. First of all, my my heartfelt sympathy that you lost your your brother Bill, and it gets me to my next point in in your book where. How did you share this struggle with God? Because this made no sense. And I think your mom and dad were both alive at the time. What a horrible... They were both what a, alive. What a and horribly they were heartbroken, of sad course. thing to be burying be your son.
2: Yeah, it was very, very difficult. And I can recall as we went to the funeral, I um, uh, actually went to the gravesite, and my wife and I were driving the car. Mom and dad were in the back seat, and we got out of the car and walked over to the gravesite where my brother was going to be buried. And my mother um, stumbled a bit as Dad was holding on to her, and I was walking right behind him. And, <laughs> oh, Bill, you're going to get me a little teary here. Um, dad turned to Mother, and I overheard him say, her name was Isabel, he called her Izzy. And what he said to her in my hearing was, remember, Izzy, Bill's not there. And I thought, my gosh, Dad is living on the basis of faith in the middle of a terrible tragedy that broke his heart, broke Mother's heart, broke my heart. And he's saying he's not there. He's, he, he's, you know, we can use the old cliches, in a better place, which doesn't provide total comfort, obviously. But Dad was saying, but this is true. And the way I would put it now, Dad was aware that a larger story was unfolding, and some of the chapters in that larger story that impact our smaller story can be really devastating. And if you don't believe that the larger story is ultimately good, then I don't know how you survive.
0: I appreciate you sharing that, Larry. It's a beautiful story, and I know it's encouraging for many. Um, But as you're starting to struggle with the aftermath, I'm not saying you specifically, but people, when they have had an incident similar uh, to what you suffered with your brother, um, they start to run away from God. They don't want to share their struggle with God. They're mad at God. And almost like Jonah, they they board a ship the other direction from God, and they then fall asleep.
2: Well, I came very close to that, Bill. It was about two months after Bill's death and after the memorial services that I, I spoke at as the family representative. And about two months later, um, I went to bed one night, of course, and it was about midnight, maybe one in the morning. I couldn't sleep. And I had turned to my wife, who was all tossing and turning as well, and I said, Honey, there are tears inside of me I have not yet shed. And I got out of bed, went to my study. And I got in touch with what was really, what I was really feeling. And I think it's a mistake when you're grieving to pretend that you're not grieving. (laughs) It's a mistake to pretend that you're doing better than you are. Mm -hmm. And I let it all loose. And I remember I picked up my Bible and I just kind of thumbed through it almost randomly, hoping that I'd be opening to a verse that would just kind of do it for me and it didn't happen. And I'm almost embarrassed to admit it, but it's true. I threw the Bible across the room. I was so angry. God, you're making no sense. And I hadn't even written this book. I hadn't thought about it yet. But you're making no sense to me why you would take my brother, why you'd break my mom and dad's heart to burying their son. That's so unnatural. You would deprive me of my only brother. And I was just furious. And in my anger, when I threw the Bible across the room, something came kind of unglued in me. And I thought, you know, that's not the best thing in the world to do. And I literally lost strength in my legs. I fell to the ground in my little office there picked up my Bible, put it back on the desk, and it still was, actually, ended up lying on the ground. And I remember the prayer that I prayed. I prayed, Lord, or I think I was calling him God, but uh, I said, God, um, I know you're all I have, but I don't know you well enough for you to be all that I need. Please let me find you. And the depths of my heart's cry to know the Lord, John 17, this is life that you know God, that the depths of my heart, my redeemed heart, came out after acknowledging all the stuff that was in me that was ugly and angry and and just not faithful at all. But in the middle of all that, that's when you discover what's really in you. And I was crying out, God, I got to know you in a way that I don't know you now. And it was that experience that led me to write one of my earlier books called Finding God. Mm. What does it mean to find God in the middle of devastation? Because we're going to be devastated in some way. There's going to be something that's that's going to happen in our lives that's going to be really difficult. And i got a bunch of other things, and you do too, and everybody does, and if they don't have them yet, they're going to have them. Um, and we need to understand somehow in the middle of this, it's really possible if we're who we are in the presence of God in those moments, and don't resist and run like Jonah did, then um, just maybe. Maybe we're going to under God, uh, know God's promise that if you seek me with all your heart, you're going to find me. And that's a promise that I cling to.
0: You know, Larry, it's so comforting to hear a Bible teacher such as yourself share that experience with the listeners because there are so many of us feel that, that momentary, temporary, um, where are you, God moment. We have those oh, yeah. all the time. And then in our, in our other moments, we go, all right, God's in control. But in our other moments, we're, where are you in all this? And you throw the Bible against the wall. That's, that's a lot of transparency.
2: Yeah, certainly, but I claim to be proud about it, but no, I think I it's, I think God allows these difficult things. I don't believe he killed my brother. I think planes crash and a sovereign God certainly allowed it. And even more importantly, a sovereign God can use whatever happens in this fallen world for a good purpose. And, um, you know, a book came out of it that I was able to write based on my really horrible experience. And, um, and yeah, of course, he asked the question, God, where are you? What are you doing? Uh, what's the deal? But the more you wrestle with that, the, the more you you've come to realize that that God in his unthwarted sovereignty can accomplish the purpose that our hearts most long for. Um, and I believe that my, my redeemed heart, and every Christian's redeemed heart, we're often not in touch with it, but every Christian's redeemed heart, more than anything else, longs to delight in God and to delight God. And if that's not the slogan for your life, you're not in touch with your deepest soul.
0: Mm -hmm. We're going to take a short break and then return with Dr. Larry Crabb in just a minute. Hi, this is Bill. Thanks for being with me. You are listening today to a memorial tribute to Dr. Larry Crabb. Welcome back. We're talking about a number of things, one of which is his book, When God's Ways Make No Sense. But after, uh, I think, sharing your story, Larry, of your brother, uh, I've got a caller on the line that would like to join the conversation. His name is Tom from Blaine, Minnesota. Hello, Tom. How are you?
3: Hello, thank you for taking my call. First of all, I want to say I've listened to your program for a while, and I truly enjoy it. Thank you. But the, the reason I'm calling, I just want to agree with your guest and hopefully be an encouragement to um, uh, my wife and I, the chances of us having kids were kind of slim, and then God blessed us with three sons. And um, our oldest son then ends up dying in a boating accident when he was 10 years old. Mm. And... um I don't know that I can say that I was angry as much as I was either confused or bewildered because, you know, we had lived a a faith walk the best we knew how. We were really involved in our local church, so it was kind of, you know, like a tidal wave that entered our world and turned us upside down and inside out. So I asked God, and I knew nothing could be changed with that experience, so I asked him to show himself in the midst of our situation and to... I remember I I said, God, just show me, prove to me that all that I believe is real and true. And and he did that. I know many times we just hope and think dominoes should all fall in a certain way because we have a faith walk, but they don't always do that. And I've learned that um, sometimes to have a faith that can't be shaken, your faith needs to be shaken. And um, even in the midst of all that, he proved himself so sweet and faithful, and I just wanted to concur with your guess and hopefully encourage someone else who might be going through a tough time.
0: Beautiful, Tom. Thank you so much. What a line, Larry. In order to have a, a faith that's unshaken, sometimes God has to shake you.
2: I was thinking the exact same line <laughs> as Tom was sharing that. I really, really yeah. appreciate Tom's call on that. Oh, my that's gosh, exactly. yeah. And you have that at the end of Hebrews where he talks about uh, things are going to be shaken up, but always for good purposes. Mm-hmm. Makes me think of Abraham Heschel, the Jewish writer who has a big old book called The Prophets. And in there, he says that when you look at how God deals with people in the Old Testament, as a Jewish fellow is talking about it, he said, I come to the conclusion that God is not an uncle, God is an earthquake. And I hear that phrase, and I'm thinking, am I supposed to be drawn to the God who's an earthquake? And the answer is, yeah, because every earthquake is accomplishing a purpose that one day I'm going to say, man, that was good. But in the meantime, it's going to be hard. But long term, it's going to be everything I, my soul could possibly want.
0: Yeah, appreciate Tom's call. Uh, so, Larry, I think I think I started the afternoon show June fourth, so it's kind of three months old now. And I said to our producer Rebecca, "So, okay, who do you who do you think who's been my favorite guest so far?" And before I even got that out, she said, "Larry Crab." Larry Crab. Larry Crabb. Larry Crabb. So there she goes again. <laughs> so, so she's. Uh, oh my. I, she had a sleepless night last night because you were on today, but she's got a question for you. I do, and hopefully I can verbalize it properly. I think this strikes at one of the biggest struggles I've had, which is I, I want things to make sense, and I believe that that God is good. I believe his purposes are higher and, and better than I can understand, but I want to understand them, and so when I don't, it causes a bit of a clash in my brain. So I'm wondering how to turn... Um, my my thoughts and my thought life over not not just to turn it off and say okay I'm trusting God and it doesn't matter what the world around me looks like but to develop my mind and my thoughts in a different direction that is hungering after the deep things the true purpose of my soul like you were talking about how do I change my brain?
2: Well, I think that's what that I got to work my with every day. You...
0: <laughs> Sorry, Bill. <laughs>
2: <laughs> um, I wish you could ask me a simple question. I'd do my best <laughs> with yours. Um I but I, I do think there's there's some ways of thinking about it, and one is uh I think about David who said that, you know, I long to gaze on your beauty. What on earth is the beauty of God? What do we mean when we say God is beautiful? Um, When we say God is beautiful in the middle of a brother's death in an airplane crash, in the middle of a 10-year-old son drowning in a boat accident, in the middle of whatever each of us is going through, whatever, Rebecca, you're going through, what is beautiful about God? And I really think that with our limited minds, and before we actually see Jesus face-to-face, there's one foundational answer that has to be on our minds on a regular basis that ought to drive us to, you are unbelievable, God. This is incredible who you are. And until we understand the depths of our sinfulness, now this is not a very marketable thought, but until we understand <laughs> that the depths of our sinfulness is rooted in self-centeredness, that I want my way, I think of what Dorothy Sayers, C.S. Lewis contemporary, said, uh, if, you want your own, if you want your own way, God will let you have it, and hell is the enjoyment of your own way forever. Phew. And the idea that something in deep in my soul is very determined, very self-centered, very determined to have my wife love me the way I want to be loved because that's what she ought to do. Have my kids turn out exactly the way I think they should be because that's what I want them to do. And all that is my way. And that's ugly. That's not giving God the glory. That's not yielding to Him. Hmm. That's telling Him what I think He should be doing. And until I I grasp the ugliness of that and recognize that He's so different than what we understand, He's holy, He's so different than what we understand, He looks at me at my worst and he sees my worst as nobody else does and he's the one who loves me most and that to me is the foundational beauty of God which boils down to we're saved we're going to heaven though we deserve hell now when I really believe that there's going to be something very foundationally lingering and I've got to be thinking about that on a daily basis I've got to be thinking that every day The ongoing value of my justification has to be prominent in my mind because there's never a day that I live exactly the way God wants me to live. There's a way in which I fail, I fall short of the relational glory of God every day of my life, and every day he never stops loving me. And until I realize the beauty of that kind of love um, and ponder that on a regular basis and gaze on that salvation beauty, gaze on that incredible loving beauty, until that becomes very central in my thinking, then my faith is going to be wobbly when bad things
0: happen. And that's all from the president of your fan club, the Larry Crabb fan club. So thank you, Rebecca. That was lovely. <laughs> thank oh, you, Larry. I appreciate, I appreciate
2: it. No, I wish I could say more. That's a very good
0: If it was shorter, I could have embroidered it on a pillow. But as it is, <laughs> I just had to take notes. <laughs> All right, Larry, if we can jump back to a little bit of Jonah, I would appreciate it. Uh, Would you talk about the sin of resisting God? Because Jonah obviously was in the belly of the fish, and his repentance was shallow, as you say, and therefore had no power to form his soul. He never confessed the sin of resisting God and running away from him. I mean, aren't we all doing that to some degree?
2: Uh, To some degree, we are. And one of the other things, you mentioned the five things I talk about, the five elements in Jonah's story. And and, and and the first one ties in with what you're asking. I think that um, of all the of all the prophets that we hear about in the scripture, and this is the way I put it in the book, God, Jonah is the only one who wouldn't even speak to God when God's ways make no sense, and that's the sin of resistance. That's the sin of saying, God, you're you're frankly you're not worth talking to because you, you don't make sense, and I can't stand that. And then when he gets you know caught up in the great fish that God sent, the whale we call it. Um, and then what? what his, if you look carefully at the the prayer that he prays there, uh, he, he, he prays some, some very strange things. But one of them is this. He said, oh, Lord, you've driven me from your presence. What a stupid sentence. God didn't drive him from his presence. Jonah ran from his yeah. presence. So he wasn't even willing to acknowledge, look at what I'm doing. I'm resisting you. And as a prophet of Yahweh, as a prophet of Almighty God, is there anything worse that a prophet could do? That wasn't on his mind because he was so consumed with what he wanted and so eager to get out of that miserable belly of the fish, but he wanted to get out, but not so we could go to Nineveh. He just wanted to get out so he wouldn't have to smell so bad and end up dying there. (laughs) There was no thought of repentance in that, and people often say, well, Jonah repented, but the reason I have trouble with that, the, 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 the verse ends where the God, uh, God had the belly had had the fish rather spit him out of the, out of the belly of the fish, and and the word for spit there in the Hebrew is a word that means getting rid of something disgusting, and I think God is saying there that Jonah, your efforts at repentance are false. There's nothing genuine from your heart about really wanting me and my way and trusting that in my goodness I'm going to move in a direction that you're going to be able to when you're when you get your mind straightened out, going to be able to celebrate. You're not repenting and therefore that I really uh, cannot uh, work in your life the way I, I long to.
0: So, Larry, talk about the idea that God sent the storm, God sent the fish. I mean, this is this is all God's doing.
2: Yeah, it really is. And we have to be very, very careful to realize—that's what I meant before by saying God is not an uncle; He's an earthquake. <laughs> that um, He, yeah. And, and I think it's the, really the, the same way. And Hebrews talks about this: that that uh, you know, I'm a dad. I gather you're a dad. And um, my two boys are now 50 and almost 48, so a little different than they were when they were 10. But when they were kids, when they were little, there were times I think that in their immaturity they thought of me as an earthquake that how could I possibly be loving given that I would not let them have certain things that they wanted and why did I bring certain things into their life that they didn't want and to the degree that I was godly and in moments I think I was (laughs) that my discipline of my children really had their well-being in mind now can you take that as a very minimal uh, inadequate parallel so when God was ca- causing the storm and causing the, um, the the fish to come along and all of that, what what he's what he's saying that he's saying essentially this: I am so relentlessly committed to your well-being, but your well-being is so far from where you are that it's going to take, as our previous guest said, it's going to take a tremendous amount of shaking of re- to, for you to recognize that there's something really going wrong with you. And I want to bring you to a crossroads in the, in the belly of the fish, in the basis of the storm. I want, to come, I want you to come to a point where you, are, you, you have no choice but to make a decision. You're going to go toward me or you're going to go away from me. And I want to bring you to that exact point, and that's going to reveal what is deepest in your heart. And that's what I think God did with my brother's death. I don't think he caused my brother's death, but he used it for me to come to a crossroads of saying, God, I'm yours, or God, I'm taken off.
0: Um, Larry, we're going to go to break in a minute here, but you use the word glory, and I think that is, you know, your boys, they needed a glory to come into their life greater than themselves. And and you, when the glory of God comes into our lives, it's usually very disruptive.
2: Oh, absolutely. Every time you, you read in the scriptures of some some person meeting God, they don't stand up and celebrate. They fall down in fear and worship. Right. God, who are you? You're different than I understood you to be. And your glory is overwhelming at times. It can be terrifying at times. Um, But there's something bigger than me. Everybody, all the millennials, I think, are evidencing this. They want to, and I want it too, we want to live for something that's a bigger cause than me in the moment. There's something in our souls. Eternity is set in our hearts. And there's something in me that wants a bigger picture to be something I can enjoy, enjoy, a bigger story that I can join.
0: Yeah, I don't sit around and try to think up spiritual... uh... Applications, but you know, whenever I buy something that comes in a clamshell, you know, I always think <laughs> I can open it on my own, and then I realize I need something that has more glory than me, so I get a big pair of scissors out. <laughs> and that cuts through it, and I destroy the, cram- the clamshell to get the product.
2: I think that would preach. I like that <laughs> metaphor. I think it's really good.
0: <laughs> All right, Larry, let me take a little break. My guest, Dr. Larry Crabb, and his book we're talking about, When God's Ways Make No Sense... Hi, this is Bill. Thanks for being with me. You are listening today to a memorial tribute to Dr. Larry Crabb. Dr. Larry Crabb is my guest, returning after a request to come back and talk some more. His book, When God's Ways Make No Sense. A lot of people are interested because my email boxes lighten up the people saying, yeah, I'd like to get in the drawing to win one of those books. That'd be nice. I'd like to say that I'm giving up the one that uh, I have in my hand, but I'm not. I'm keeping it for me, just so you know. <laughs> so, uh, Larry, let's uh, wrap up our discussion here on, on the five uh, the five elements of Jonah and the way in which he resisted God, the five element, key elements in his story. And just the, the last one, I think we've touched on this a little bit, but uh, Jonah's resisting and running was a response to a God he did not no
2: i think that's crucial i think that there's no question um in 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 a in a solid christian's mind that the more we know god and wrestle with what we know of him that we're not drawn to and the more we realize that anybody who died for me is worth knowing Even when it doesn't seem like he's all that worth knowing and what we know of and we're not that drawn to, we need to keep on pursuing the knowledge of God. We need to keep on saying, God, I I have to know you better in the faith, in the belief that the more I come to know you, ultimately, I'm going to want nothing more. Psalm 73, God, uh, there's nothing I want more than you. You're my only good in this entire world. And Jonah um, had a very different view from his background. And most of us have all sorts of background issues from our church, unfortunately, and sometimes, and maybe our parenting. And we get this picture of God sometimes because of parents that fail us rather badly. We get this picture of God as being something other than he is. And until we become clear on the gospel, until we become clear of what he's committed to and the love that he energizes everything he does in our lives, until we're clear on that we're not going to be interested in the God that we don't know that well, and we're going to come up with a God that is not the real God, and we're not going to be very drawn to him.
0: Yeah, so what a great, uh, what a, a, a great endorsement for getting in his, into his word and studying, because that's the only way we get, we get to know the true God.
2: And I think I think obviously the more important than any other book in the scriptures and, the, and any other book is the scripture. The Bible is the only book that is God's God's word literally and His self-revelation. But I also find it very very helpful to read some of the some of the old time authors and uh, people like John Bunyan, Book Pilgrim's Progress. And I just finished reading a book that he wrote subsequently to Pilgrim's Progress, The Holy War. And here's a guy that. Um, was put in jail for preaching the gospel in England. Um, He had four children. He couldn't be with them. He's now in jail. He had a daughter who was uh, 12 years old at the time. Her name was Sarah, I think. She was blind. And while he's in jail, one of the things that he said is that, uh, God, I, um, I feel so badly that I cannot be with my beloved daughter Mary, who's blind. I cannot be there to provide for my family. This is breaking my heart. But may the, may the frost cover my eyes, or he had some phrase like this, before I ever renounce my love for you. In the middle of all the hardships of life, here was a guy that was looking at God and saying, I see a beauty that makes me want to pursue pursue you when I only can see ugliness all around me. When I read men and women like that, Corrie Ten Boom comes to mind and and mm-hmm. in, in, Nazi, in Nazi Germany and all the horrible things that she went through, and she was still saying, but there's a God in whom I trust. I know he's good. And I read that, and then I come to realize that one of my favorite lines by C.S. Lewis is that no degree of heroism or holiness achieved by the greatest of saints is beyond the reach of any of us. And I look at these men and women of God, and I've just been studying Hebrews a little bit recently. And there's something in me that says, could I be one of those who actually knows God so well that no matter what happens in my life, I really think he's wonderful and I'm so grateful that I know him, even when he doesn't come through the way I wish he would, even when he doesn't make sense to me, is there still a knowledge of him that's going to draw me to him in the worst of my moments as well as in the best? And even more than that, in the best moments, because I have a lot of best moments I have good things in my life, talking to you is one of them, I really enjoy it. But I've got to say that, that the good things in my life don't come close to the goodness of knowing God. And I want to be one of those people who actually can say that meaningfully, and I want to be able to say it more than I can today.
0: That's beautiful, Larry. Hey, would you talk about uh, the way Christians will claim a promise that God never made? I think, you know, as much as we want God to be um, so intensely personal, I think we we run off and we talk about promises that God's going to deliver that he never made
3: we
2: have a very inadequate understanding of the source of joy we really we we have experienced pain in life everybody has whether it's my brother's death whether it's my cancer whether whatever your struggles are whatever Rebecca's struggles are whatever the problems of listeners right now that that when, when we have struggles and difficulties in life we know we feel pain And when pain is felt more deeply than any other emotion, we just can't imagine that a God who loves us would not be committed to relieving our pain. And that's just a very inadequate conception of God. We then make make him into a God that he's not. We claim promises he's not made. He's not promised to relieve our pain in this life. He's promised to give us peace. But it's a peace that passes understanding, meaning, I believe, it's a peace that undergirds us in the middle of continuing pain. It isn't a peace that eliminates sorrow. It isn't a peace that eliminates aching. And the reason I believe that is Romans chapter 8, where Paul says, you know, we groan inwardly uh, as we wait eagerly. Until we get to heaven, there's going to be sighing and lamenting and sorrow and aching. And and we just assume that if God loved us, he'd, he'd get rid of that. And the answer is he will, but not until he continues his transforming work within us, until we, until we die and get to heaven.
0: Mm-hmm. Larry, how can we more? How can we better enjoy the sovereignty of God in our lives? We know God is sovereign. How can we better enjoy that?
2: Well, I think we have to understand what sovereignty is, and I think that um, one of the ways that a lot of people view sovereignty is that God is—they they simply say, "Well, God's in control of everything." So whatever happens, God is the causative agent behind it. And if that's your position on sovereignty, I have a really hard time being able to enjoy God as a sovereign God. Can I really enjoy if God is the God that caused my cancer, if God is the God that caused my brother's death, if God is the God that caused all the bad things? And the difficulty with that position is we live in a fallen world, and God has not put Satan in the lake of fire eternally quite yet. And therefore, he still is uh, out there running around and doing damage all over the place. And we have wicked men. We still have the Hitlers in our generation, maybe not quite as bad as Hitler, but we have all kind of bad people that are doing awful things in this world. And is God the agent of making Hitler kill six million Jews? Of course not. Does God allow it in his sovereignty? Yes, but always for a good purpose. So the only way that we can enjoy God's sovereignty, I'll speak for myself, the only way that I can really celebrate God as my sovereign God is to believe that he's in charge, he's in total control of whatever he chooses to control. And what he chooses to control is that nothing is ever going to happen to me that he cannot use for a purpose that he knows is best for me. So whatever happens in my life, whether he caused it or not, really isn't the point in my mind. Certainly he allowed it if he didn't cause it, because God can do whatever he chooses. But when I understand that God is unthwarted in his purposes, nothing can block his loving purpose for my life, even when this world disrupts my being in half at how it feels sometimes, even in that moment, do I believe in, in, the, in, in the God that his, his purposes are going to ripen, his purposes are going to be achieved. Nothing can get in the way of God's purpose for my soul, and his purposes are good. Can I believe that? In that case, I can say, God, I'm glad you're sovereign. I rest in your godly purposes.
0: Mm -hmm. Larry, this is not fair because we have a minute left, but I'm going to ask you a question with a minute to go. Do we talk very much about personal holiness?
2: The answer is um, two-part. In my mind, no, we don't. We really don't talk much about that. And the second part of the answer is I think that we have a trivial understanding of holiness, that... You know, I've been married 52 years. I've never had an affair, so I guess I'm holy. (laughs) I've been alive 74 years, and I've never taken the drugs. I've never watched porn. Mm -hmm. I guess I'm holy.
3: Mm -hmm.
2: And I'm certainly glad I've never had an affair and don't watch porn, and that's a good thing to be able to say. But that doesn't mean I'm holy, because holy means separate from the way we naturally want to live, as God is other than. And holiness. I like to define holiness in terms of relational terms. What is relational holiness? To put the love of Jesus on display in every moment of my life, I fall short of that every day. Mm-hmm. And until I understand that to be holy means to be relationally holy as well as behaviorally holy, but relationally holy. To when when one of my sons irritates me, to not so much have a feeling of getting even or telling him whether off base, but but what does it mean to relate to them in a way that reveals the character of Christ? Yeah. If I'm thinking like that, then I can make a claim to growing a little bit in relational
3: yeah.
0: holiness. Well, Larry, we got to get the studio cleaned up for our two. Uh, Rebecca, you got to get the Larry Crab for President Banners down off the studio. we got to clean that up.
3: All right. All right.
0: But, Larry, thanks so much for <laughs> doing the show. We'd love to have you back in a month. Uh, we just we love talking to you. Thank you so much. A special thanks to you for listening today. I hope you enjoyed the wisdom of Dr. Larry Crabb. Again, a man who lived a spectacular life, uh, serving the Lord in so many ways and making a difference in so many uh, lives uh, through his books and his teaching and his counseling. Uh, my best to his uh, wife, Rachel, and his sons, Kep and Ken. And thank you for um, for being such an amazing family that did so much for the kingdom. I hope you enjoyed the show, and I hope you have a wonderful weekend. That wraps up our time together for the week. I hope uh, you also get some rest this weekend, and I'm already looking forward to spending time with you coming up on Monday. So have a great weekend, and I will be with you again real soon as you lay your head on the pillow. Know God's working out his great plan for you.